Welcome to the I Wish I Knew That podcast. This is it. We had to start this episode as soon as possible because as soon as we logged on to this call, we were like, okay, you've got your notes. Yeah, I've got my notes. You've got your songs. Yeah, I've got the songs. This just has to happen loosely. So I'm going to introduce this episode in a very meta fashion. Today we're talking about the one and the only, and that is a cliche. But with this gentleman, it's really appropriate. There is one Rick Rubin and there's only one Rick Rubin. And in that, Emily's here with me, by the way, as ever, doing amazing things. With Rick Rubin, I think it's really appropriate that we do a very free-flowing episode. I can't promise structure. I can't promise always making that much sense. But me and Emily are going to go super meta. I'm super excited, as you can tell. I'm going to hand over to Emily to make some sense of this because I'm just bubbling with Rick Rubin wisdom. Cool. I'm very excited too. We were initially planning how we were going to do this a few minutes ago and then we just started launching into an interesting conversation already because he's such an inspiring gent, you know, uh, a big thing to marvel at in terms of Rick Rubin is just how prolific and eclectic he is. He really has an interesting draw in terms of who his clientele is, you know, everything. Starting in his early days, he did a lot more hip-hop and punk uh, based out of New York City, but then he's gone to take on big, massive, huge bands making iconic albums in rock and, you know, country too. So he's just a very eclectic man of one particular, I was going to say many talents. It's more like one particular talent. talent. It's funny. (laughs) But the thing that we were talking about just now is how the thing to marvel at the most with him is really his mindset and really what he brings to the table in terms of that in his mind and just purely in his ear training. Because he said himself, he doesn't know how to play any instruments. He's not really much of a singer. He's a producer, but he doesn't even know anything formal about using a mixing console. Everything is really just... You know, his instrument is his ear and also his mindset and his ava- his ability to overcome challenges and to also just plant these little seeds of positivity in all of his clients' minds, too. That's one thing he says with every project is this is going to be the best thing that we've ever done. And sometimes that seems like ridiculous in some context to some people. Like he talks about working with uh, Black Sabbath, who had already peaked and had all of these really interesting albums come out by the time he made his way to them. Um, But still being able to keep that mindset and whether or not it's true or not almost doesn't even matter uh, is the point. Because if you put out the best record you've made as a result of that, great. Um, But even if you don't, it's really thinking that and affirming it to yourself constantly, I'm going to make the best record that I've ever made that gets you through and gets everything done at the end of the day. And he's hit the mark with that also a lot of times, you know, like I said, he's worked with Black Sabbath. He's worked with uh, the early days of the Beastie Boys. He's one of the founding members of Def Jam Records uh, based out of New York City with Russell Simmons. Like this guy has done all kinds of different stuff. And he's also said that he's really not nostalgic about it at all because he continues to just love to to make more. And that's what's important. And so I hope by the end of this episode, you can absorb just a glimpse of what it's like to be in the mind of Rick Rubin. We're going to start it off 
talking a little bit about his early life. We both have a little bit of an anecdote. So it seems like it was really his aunt that was an influential figure in his life and that she would bring him to New York City to have little bouts of culture every couple of months. They'd go to a play or they'd go to an opera or something like that. And that was one of his more formative memories that influenced him to go to NYU, New York University, uh, which is where he started Def Jam, his first record label. You know, he was still in the dorms. So I just think that that particular detail is quite inspiring because, you know, his career has snowballed and he's gained so much more momentum from that one little taking off point. And it's all about, you know, remembering that even when you're in this position where you're at the pinnacle of the industry, you have to start from that humble beginning. I thought it was just really interesting how he's not afraid to start, even though he only had so many resources at the time. And then a lot of it really is the mindset. Jamie, you had another interesting little story from earlier in his life too, I remember. I want to just build on it because Rick Rubin to me was someone as a kid, I grew up playing Californication before I had any idea even who the members of the band of the Chili Peppers, who was Rick Rubin. I didn't know. I was just singing Californication. And so to me, I saw Rick Rubin as this already kind of gray-haired Buddha kind of figure of music. And I think he's absolutely incredible. But if you look at where he started, yeah, this is a guy who moved to New York. He was devouring vinyl, still devours music continually, like Emily said, which I think it's mind blowing to me. I don't know how he does it. And then he ends up creating Def Jam records in his dorm. And people at NYU were like, are you starting a business in the dorm room? He goes, yep. Having meetings in there and like didn't necessarily sign things, just had these executives come to see what he was doing in his room. It's just incredible. And then you think about, I could be completely wrong, but I know he created Def Jam. He might even have been influential in the kind of really early, like, KRS One, like break beats, hip hop. Like I think he was maybe all the way back in those days, which is insane to think about that he's still like doing Kesha records. And Emily talked about his range and he did to go from KRS One to Kesha. He's done Kanye. Kanye's also self kind of professed, can't play an instrument, doesn't know how to produce essentially, but both of them are the, some of the best producers ever, some of the most talented people ever. So I think it gives a lot of hope with that mindset and works with Jay Z. Like how do you get in a room with Jay Z? Kendrick or the conversations he's had with Kendrick which I'm going to talk about get in a room with Stormzy the way he does get in a room with the Red Hot Chili Peppers in fact I remember when he first worked with the Red Hot Chili Peppers first time he met them he heard they were practicing in the studio he'd heard about their reputation what they were like in terms of partying drugs danger to themselves and he came in with the Beastie Boys to watch a practice sat there said nothing and left and years later Anthony Kier just said, you know, what the hell was that? You know, we wanted to work with you really early on. And Rick, in terms of mindset, like Emily said, he said, someone was going to get hurt. The feeling in that room was just dangerous. I had to get out. So it's, it's magic that this man has that, that touch. And it's really interesting to see what actually separates him from people that are incredible engineers, incredible producers, multi-instrumentalists. It has to be that mindset. It has to be that sense of acceptance. And the last thing I think I'll drop in in the, the early stages and if you haven't guessed, by the way, because I'm rushing into this episode, just barely breathing, so excited. I've been thinking about this for weeks, weeks, or months even, is we're also going to cover a bunch of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So if you love the Red Hot Chili Peppers, you're welcome. Um, and, and for me, this has been brewing ever since I, I was in Sydney. And this was a time I was just about to have a really bad dip of depression. But I was in Sydney on this beautiful beach walking 
um, up the eastern coast of, of the city through all the beaches up to Bondi. And I was listening to Rick Rubin and my favorite historian, Dan Carlin, podcasting about creativity in his book. And I was like, oh, this is just the nicest conversation. There's no crap in it. There's no pretense. It's very much about how to be creative. So yeah. And, and also he drove 200 miles to see a James Brown concert. That's the only kind of short anecdote I had, but like to be that age and to want to see James Brown that badly. I know Americans see distance very differently, but the guy's just passionate. He's just a punk. He's moved to NYU, creates a hip hop label, devours vinyl, culture, as you said, op- opera, those kind of things. Just open, open, open. So welcome to the teachings of Rick Rubin with a really heavy, heavy side of spicy red hot chili peppers. Yes. Thank you for that. You got me thinking about so many other little details. So I'm like, okay, where do I start? We'll get it all out. But yeah, no, you're talking about how he definitely had a hand in influencing more like early New York City hip hop culture too, with producing um, a little band called Public Enemy. I don't know if if our listeners know them, right? But yeah, just one thing that, that struck me in terms of both listening to him talk and looking at his discography is like, okay, there is a common thread here. It's very eclectic, but what is that common thread? And I really think that at the end of the day, it does have a lot to do with mindset and it has to do with how he's just become a very spiritually driven person. And, you know, I've watched him being interviewed so many different times and you just think of him kind of, like you're saying, as this Buddha, as this guru, as this incredibly chill, peaceful, uh, one-with-himself type of human being. Uh, but then I listened to him talk in this one interview, and he's like, yeah, that's not my nature, you know? Uh, I feel like I have as much anxiety and panic in me as any other human being, but it's just, he's so ritualized now around being able to meditate or go on a walk on the beach, uh, whenever he deems it appropriate. And just also it's, it's sheer life experience too, I guess being, you know, half of his age, it's like, wow, I, I just kind of marvel at his ability to, uh, have that kind of mental fortitude, whether it's, you know, in his personal life, he had like open heart surgery in the last couple of years or, you know, working with, living legends like Johnny Cash, you know, it's, it's all just like him being able to take things in stride because of the fact that he's built up this line of defense for himself in terms of his mindset. He he's makes his meditation really important. Um, and then there's also this like spiritual aspect in all of the music that he makes that he touches upon in, there's one particular interview, but he's being interviewed by a man who's actually a monk Really interesting conversation, but he talks about how the way he thinks of music is all music is devotional music, uh, whether it's secular or not. You are in service of the song as musicians. Uh, and then, you know, the subject matter too, like whether, for example, like even with a band you wouldn't think that of, like Slayer, uh, you know, they have songs that are a little bit more... Um, yeah, like you're saying, like seem kind of like violent or dangerous in terms of the lyrics. People show up to a Slayer concert. It's not out of hate, right? It's out of love for the band always out and the love. art. Absolutely. Yes, that you're touching upon exactly what I'm, I'm trying to get to is that it's always, it's out of love. Everything that he's doing, it's very uh, coming from a place like, okay, how can we possibly do our best? And like, what does that look like? And how can we be 
devotional in some sort of way. Um, and it's really interesting hearing all of these little anecdotes from all of these popular artists that he's worked with and how working with Ruben has become a turning point in so many people's lives. Like we were talking a minute ago about how uh, to start off the Red Hot Chili Peppers conversation, um, he's working with Anthony Kiedis when he finally got in the studio with him. Um, you know, when he's recording songs like Californication um, or like Under the Bridge, those are the songs. Uh, and that particular album was one of the biggest pivotal points of his life because it really pushed him to get sober. You know, a lot of those guys struggled with opiates over the years, like almost the entire band. And so uh, they're coming from that kind of place. But if you listen to some of the lyrics, particularly in Under the Bridge, um, it's it's a bit on the harrowing side. And him being able to express that and lay that all out and be candid and be confessional, you know, this is the music that he's making closest time-wise to the time that he's actually in rehab. Uh, and so it's all becomes symbolic and representative of the biggest change of his whole life. And then as a result, it becomes so pivotal in so many other people's lives. And it's really just starts with that moment of uh, being devotional in this instance to yourself and what comes of that, which I thought was really interesting. And then there's a similar story of when he started to work with Johnny Cash because he worked with him at the very end of his life. All of his last recordings that came out after he had a very long stint of not releasing anything. Uh, the reason for that is because he was starting to, you know, feel like at the end of the line in terms of his creativity later in life and was actually when Rick met him uh, playing bar gigs, you know, which is insane to me that he had to go back to that kind of position. And a lot of people really didn't know the any difference or none to, the wiser. They didn't realize they're uh, watching one of the most influential country artists of his century, you know. It's just, it was wild. That's where Rick Rubin sat down, had a conversation with him, tried to convince him to make a new record, was met with a lot of things like, oh, I'm I'm too old and this and that and all of these different hangups. And then Rick found the right songs for him to cover and was like, look, you don't have to think about this in terms of the perspective of like a love song if you don't want to. Even if even though this cover song is about like a woman, um, you can make it more about God. Like so, like put in that kind of devotional mindset, and he was able to do it. He was able to perform, and Rick Rubin just kind of magically showed up and gave him an outlet. And then we also, from those sessions, have the really great um, Nine Inch Nails cover of the song Hurt, um, which now a lot of times people attribute that song to John Cash not realizing who the original writer even is because he's just done so much with it in terms of the cover. But point being, um, yeah, he's just been such a pivotal person in so many people's lives. And it is about showing up at the right time and having that right mindset uh, that I think is really interesting. And the main thing I want people to take away from this, because I started off with a kind of rush, like, okay, this is about Rick Rubin and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You'll see that from the title as well. And Emily's here with me. And I think it's kind of appropriate to say the reason why He's changed the lives of these people we've talked about. The reason why you've heard his name 
the reason why we're talking about him still to this day is something that I like to call the ministry of presence. I actually stole it from Shia LaBeouf talking to John Berthnall on his podcast, but he was talking about it again in the, in the sense of AA. What makes the difference in people's lives? Something I like to call the ministry of presence. What that is, that there's, there's a brilliant, brilliant clip on the internet of Rick Rubin meeting Stormzy, who's a UK rapper, for the first time. And Stormzy's like 6'4", really muscular, very athletic, very imposing, very kind, but very imposing guy. But as soon as he comes up the stairs, he's like a school kid. He's like, this is Rick Rubin, the presence of Rick Rubin. And the beauty is like, who gets Stormzy to sit down and go, hey, let's take a few breaths together. Let's catch up to each other. Let's be right here. And that ministry of presence is incredibly powerful. And I think that's the reason why he's hired again. And for those of you who are songwriters, whether you're new to it or not, or you're producers, if you can get your head around the ministry of presence, which we're going to talk about today, what that means, because mindset was the, the initial word. Ministry of presence, I think, is the practical aspect. Then we're going to be breaking down not only what that is, but the effects that it has on the musicians that write the music. That's what Emily's kind of scratching at, I think, beautifully, is what it does to people. So a few little examples of ministry of presence is walking into a room, looking people in the eye, saying, hello, how are you? Breathing with them, having the confidence to go, I'm settled. You will be settled. You're welcome here. Your ideas are welcome here. And I remember I started working with an artist called Sorel Urelli, and she has an incredible life story. She's been through some things that I would never understand. You know, not only sort of a refugee having lost her father early, going through incredibly strange kind of romances with fame that she didn't want, then political issues, you know, being in, well, you know, citywide police riots, um, to then coming to the UK. This incredible life story. And just before I'd worked with her, I'd heard Rick Rubin talking about judgment. Having zero judgment is a mindset. And he said, if you're listening to someone and they say something that you disagree with, it's up to you to shut up listen and think about why that didn't land with you think about how you can almost like unsharpen yourself like blunt that thing that ego that was trying to get you to jump in and tell someone else they're wrong i thought that was amazing it's very much called it's, it's active listening it's non-judgmental it's a very kind of therapeutic aspect so meditation emily's mentioned being present we talked about and that therapeutic aspect this is just another element of why rick rubin's so special and why he does these things but the effect that that had for me was I was sat with Sorel and my friend Taka, the producer, and I started to note down all the things she's talked about. And she was talking about everything from being hit by a car and carrying on just because she wanted to get to like a pool session. Then she talked about having been to a park and met real life lizards embodying her greatest fears. And I'm I'm not someone that's particularly spiritual in terms of I'm, I'm somewhat secular, but I understand everyone has their beliefs and I think they're incredibly important. People need those, right? But I was hearing this story and I think a younger me might have jumped in and gone, oh, what do you mean? Or might have switched off. But I went, hold on, no, what, what would Rick say? What would Rick do? That's what this episode should be called. What would Rick Rubin do? And I sat there and I listened and I noted every single thing she said. Okay, what was that like? How did that feel? What was the meaning behind it? That zero judgment, that just acceptance of what was it like for you? Be open to their world. And I think that was incredibly practical for me. Nothing is wrong too. Like, how can you be more open? How can you make people feel welcome? How can you make them feel like their ideas are brilliant? And Emily talked about Under the Bridge. Under the Bridge is one of the biggest songs ever, maybe. And definitely one of the biggest Red Hot Chili Pepper songs it's one of the most recognizable because it's so different. It's less about like, you know, bombastic sex, soul, that kind of crazy world that they started off in. It's much more about connecting to what's really happening. Like Emily said, Anthony Kielis 
had these poems he'd been writing when he was dealing with opium addiction, depression. Like, you don't just get an addiction for nothing. It's depression, it's loneliness. That's what this song is about. Yeah, particular bridge used to go to, to to buy drugs, take drugs. He'd run into all kinds of people. And they were writing this record with Rick Rubin. And I think Rick said to Anthony, do you have anything else? You know, what else is there? I feel like we need something a bit more closer to home. And without that ministry of presence, without that mindset, he would never have found that poem, would never have felt comfortable enough to actually show someone else, let alone let him turn it into a song. So the idea here practically for you guys is how can you be such an open, kind book that people want to offer their best, that people feel comfortable and able to offer their ideas. That is incredibly practical to you. So take what you will from this, but I think that is incredibly practical. You get songs like Under the Bridge. So, you know, I remember, I'll let Emily talk about that song a little more because there's some other technical aspects. But just for me, sensory-wise, again, very Rick Rubin, very much about feeling. He talks about feeling a song. I think it's incredible. Every time I hear the intro, I'm ready to sing it. I saw them in Australia this year, which I've probably told everyone I've met. Since then, there was this 60-year-old man with his hat backwards and dyed moustache and black hair with his incredible abs and chest out, hanging off this microphone, and then you just hear the first riff of Under the Bridge. The whole stadium kind of went silent. You could just feel everyone was ready. And as soon as he sung it, everyone just jumped in. They're like, that's the hurt. And we want to talk about the Barnum effect a bit more. I think, like Emily said, when you write something that's a revelation for you, when you write it well, it becomes a revelation for others. It becomes a touchstone, a point. And because it's so true, because it's so genuine and so emotional, because he was felt like he could be that, because Rick Rubin had to kind of like nudge him that way, encourage him to do that. You get a song like Under the Bridge. So ministry of presence, listening to people actively, not judging them, nothing is wrong. How do you make them feel comfortable? Some Just some of the practical things that if you can take away from this, you will be a better writer and a better human being. Wow. Okay. Lovely. Love the succinctness at the end there. And I also love that you brought up the Barnum effect because I was thinking about it the last time I listened to this song, right? A couple of days ago. One lyric in particular that stood out to me um, is in the, the bridge, no pun intended. One of the first lyrics of that particular section is under the bridge downtown is where I drew some blood. He's not saying under the bridge downtown is where I was shooting up heroin every day on Tuesday. You know, it's not that level of specificity. It's just is where I drew some blood. And so it's like, you know, insert story here. He could be talking about uh, living a life of violent crime for all we know. But that lyric in particular just evokes intensity and like the right kind of intensity. And if you hear it in the context of the song and you know a, even a little bit about his life, you know what that song's actually about. Um, but it doesn't have to be too specific. And the majority of the song, because that's actually structured quite towards the end, that one particular lyric where he might even be hinting about what's happening. The majority of the song is really about isolation, something that we do a lot when we write. You know, in session with Jamie, something that I've taken to is that as you're writing, um, you want to come up with one sentence. It doesn't have to be a lyric in your song, but one sentence that sums up every section. Um, and at the beginning of the song, it's more like the song is about Sometimes I feel like my only friend is the city I live in. So it's like this level of solitude 
and um, not in a positive way, solitude, but more like isolation, loneliness, a bit of destitute. Uh, and that seems to be what the majority of the song is about. And a lot more people can relate to that than, uh, you know, this more violent vignette at the end or this more like harrowing vignette. I think that everyone can feel that little bit of loneliness sometimes. So being him being able to talk about something specifically enough that it's a pivotal point in his life for him to release that song, uh, but then also for it to be vague enough that he has said in an interview that he hears people blasting this song throughout Los Angeles all of the time, and it does his heart good. And yeah, a lot of times it's... Uh, people who you might label as less approachable that they're playing that kind of music. It really, really shows you, um, yeah, the power of just like being in a place of non-judgment. And it's vulnerability, isn't it? That's the idea because it really is. You, you're alluding to the fact that he'll go into like places like Compton or roll around like Crenshaw, like places that are difficult to be in, to live in. And they found a way to express their vulnerability in, in a life where they're probably having to do things none of us have ever had to think about doing as a way to get by, not as a choice, you know, but they can find the vulnerability. And it's like, that is, that is one of the best songs ever in my mind. Cause it's just like, sometimes I feel like I don't have a partner. And like, that's so, so freaking sensitive and emotive. It's just beautiful. I think. Okay. Now that you're jumping back into the verse, I want to talk about something, um, that I'm obsessed with that they're doing on a more technical standpoint in the song. So the intro, right? Think about the intro. It's an iconic riff. It's really interesting. Um, and there's something happening from the intro into the verse um, that's a little bit unconventional, or we don't really see it all the time. It's something called either a deceptive cadence or a false cadence. Uh, and what that means essentially is that, the, especially for the intro, this is a funny place to have it because what does the intro usually do? It sets you up for what's about to come. I talked about this a little bit in the last episode of Emily's Help Desk, where uh, your intro, you often want to introduce the chords and then bam, you have a little bit of lyricism over those chords. Um, after the intro, there's actually a key change. And the chord progression in the intro doesn't even resolve itself. It goes straight into the new key, and your brain kind of thinks that it was resolved because you're playing the one, right, the root note of the new key, right, with the sometimes I feel, like right at that part, brand new key. Um, you think it's resolved, but it never really got resolved. But because we're introducing the one right away, your brain is like, oh, yeah, it it's resolved, but there's like a little something else. There's a little sparkle to it, and I don't know what it is. It's the deceptive cadence. So I want you to experiment with that. That's why I'm throwing that out there. And another thing to note about this song is that there's a key change for every section, every single section. So... There's that, right? Or at least a tonal center shift. So going from that intro into uh, go into going into um, like the, the verse, you have a key change. And then we have a shift to the relative minor when you get into the chorus. And then that last section, right, that I was talking about, um, we're in A. Like we go from like 
F sharp to D to A. It's all over the place. Every section has its own key. So that's my writing challenge for y'all this week is if you don't know how you want to structure a song or you're looking for some chords, um, try having a different key for every single section. And it'll give you just a little bit more of that like dynamism, especially in a longer song. It makes a lot of sense um, to do something like that so that it's not going to be anything to, well, I mean, if you have the same chords, you could make something that's more hypnotic, you know, it's more kind of recursive. But if you want to have something that's got twists and turns and really keeps the listener more engaged, more than the listener kind of like is zoning out to your music, then that's a cool technique to do is to just take it a half step or a full step off uh, every once in a while or shift to the relative minor of whatever you're playing. Or if it's a minor key, shift to the relative major. You could change modes. There's so many things you could do. But that really is a big part of the magic of this song is the constant key change and tonal tonal center shifts but yeah and then in addition the the lyricism and the the level of meaningfulness and so being able to bring those two things together that's what makes a great song but it is a great song and i think it's great that you've gone to that level of something that i've never really taken the time to think about because i'm just such a lyrics emotive person but someone like john frusciante who plays guitar for the band intermittently most of the time it's been him how can you work in that level of complexity into such a beautiful and simple, quote-unquote simple, idea? I just think that, to me, is the genius of not only the producer who's going to go, do you know what? Yeah, do that. Do something really different. Do something really strange that's unconventional. And you talked about making sure that people don't zone out. And I think that, for me, was maybe four or five years ago. I heard a conversation between Rick Rubin and Kendrick Lamar, if you've heard of either of them. And they talked about deliberately putting things in their music that ensure people are listening. Kind of like listening checks. You know, you're going to change a chord. You're going to do like a stop. You can do a breath. You do something strange. Manipulate the voice. Change key. False resolution. Stuff like that. That just means that you're checking the people that are not checking out. And I think that shows a level of awareness that isn't always that common. And, and to think about how to do something differently in that sense, I think is genius. And again, Kendrick Lamar and Rick Rubin, they are absolute lovers. And again, Kendrick Lamar, if you didn't know, he's been consuming jazz music and progressive music from year zero, probably influenced or definitely influenced because he would come and watch um, Def Jam artists like when they come out to Compton and stuff, definitely influenced by what Rick Rubin's doing. But to see that that continues when you find these geniuses, I think it's so important for you guys as songwriters to think, how do I do this differently? How do I do this in a way that's interesting to people, but at the same time is intriguing enough and unique enough for them to continue to listen? What value are you giving them? What are you touching on? Not just technically, but emotionally. So that's a beautiful thing. And I kind of want to jump into a song, but there's just so many things to think about. And I'm going to do a really, really quick Rick Rubin rundown in a meta, calm way, because we've covered so many things of Rick, but I just think it's really important at least what I think is super important, Ministry of Presence. Because we were talking about all these underpinnings, talking about John Frusciante's chord choices, melodic choices, no doubt Flea as well. But they would not come about unless they felt comfortable, unless they felt like their ideas were going to be heard. They're going to try things. And Rick Rubin's like, you'd always try it. You might not like it. And even if you're thinking, okay, well, that's nice to hear all these different things you can do. But how do they make decisions? Again, it's a feeling. So Rick Rubin talks continually about 
Make music that you love to your taste. How does it make you feel? It's kind of hinting on what we've talked about, but music that lands for you will land for others. If things are continued, we're not going to talk too much about tools. We will talk about his approach to rules and tools later. But when was the last time you wrote a song and all you did was think about whether you like it or not? I've had a couple of sessions this week where con- people have gone, hey, what What if someone finds this out about this song? Or what if I write it and they think this? Or what's the best thing to do currently based on what Pop and Spotify are doing? I'm like, I'll answer your questions because they're great questions. How do you answer those questions? I always work on it, try and get better. How do you answer those questions in a way where the other person figures out they don't need to think about that. They don't need to worry about that. What do they think? Or as simple as like my earliest client ever, Tyler, he would have an incredible way of thinking about things. And he'd say, so what do you think about that? How do we know if it's right? I go, sing it. How does it feel? What does it feel like? Those things are so, so important. And um, kind of reminds me of the Socratic method, which if you've ever seen a picture of what we believe Socrates to look like, it's not far from what Rick Rubin looks like. So that's worth thinking about as well. But Rick Rubin, I'd imagine... He's very clever. And even if he disagrees with something, I bet he would give people the space to think about it, ask them enough questions that they would come to their own conclusions. That's really what Socrates is famous for. I don't think there's a particular thing he's famous for. It's more a sense of how do you ask people, much like therapists do, ask people the right questions in the right way, non-judgmentally, openly, kindly, but efficiently, so they can find the answer for themselves. So that's just kind of a quick, quick recap. I still want to talk about um, tools in a minute and I'm just going to leave this part, this feeling thing. I'm going to hand it over to Emily, but listening for the way it makes him feel is what he talks about. And I want to talk about very quickly Maya Angelou. And she says, people will not remember what you say. They'll remember how you made them feel. So we've blabbed a lot and we will continue to blab on this podcast. I promise you about practicality, tools, nerdy shit, but it's all to make people feel something. So Maya Angelou, Rick Rubin, Socrates. There you go. You've never heard that on a podcast before. Once again, eclectic is the name of the game if we're talking about Rick Rubin. Um, But yeah, to bounce off of what you're saying, one thing that I've noticed uh, listening to him talk a fair amount now and uh, just trying to gather like, okay, what is the crux of what this man is on about? Um, A big strength of his is being able to tap into and influence the subconscious. Uh, right? Like he tells a little bit of an anecdote uh, about, I'll, I'll get into one about the Beatles and then one about the Chili Peppers again. Um, but, you know, Rick Rubin is a personal friend of Paul McCartney and has known the Beatles over the years. And one point that he makes is that you catch any one of those guys one-on-one in an interview and they're very introspective, uh, very thoughtful, You know, they have a lot to say. And then you put any one of them with the other one, right? And it influences them subconsciously to act different because they've known each other. You know, they have a different relationship where it triggers them to get back into this like kind of boyhood mentality and they become very deflective and sarcastic and they're, they're... pranksters and um just it's interesting how he talks about this though and how like there's little subtle cues like that that can influence your subconscious and create a completely different result and the example of the chili peppers that i want to bring up is he talks about how working with them you try and get the same take or or different takes of the same part 
and it's tricky. Uh, so there's different ways that you can influence your subconscious doing that to produce a little bit of a different result and a little bit of a mental shift. One thing that's very simple that he likes to do is to just start the session with the lights on and then eventually turn the lights off. It's no longer take 56, it's take one in the dark, right? Little simple things like that that you can do. And I think that that's what he's really a master of, is being able to influence subconscious aspects in the room and in the music. And that, again, to me, is that ability to be... Because sometimes, right, Rick Rubin will be sleeping in the back of the session and his engineer will be doing it. And you could look at that, a snapshot, and go, what the... You know, how is he doing this? I'm more talented, I'm hardworking, blah, 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 blah. But the ministry of his presence, where he's lying there and he's going... What's the best approach here? And one beautiful thing, actually, that makes me think about this, which is a tangent. I'll do it in a second. First of all, I want to finish that thought because it's a really, really good point is that his ministry of presence, he's there and he's he's present enough to be empathetic to someone sat in the booth going, how can I make this a new experience for them while still getting consistency and creativity? Boom, lights off. Or let's have a coffee break. Let's go for a walk. Things like that are what make you reliable. I don't know why it reminds me of a cricket player. He plays for Australia and he's an incredible player anyway, but what his value to the team was is he would take people out for a walk and a coffee and have a chat, make sure everyone's okay. Like how freaking valuable is that when you're in a new city in a new town? You know, that kind of thing is really important. So I want to talk about the next aspect of what I think is really important about Rick Rubin that you can also steal. We know nothing. When you see Rick Rubin, like I said, Socrates, Maya Angelou, people are incredibly wise and I've grown up with Rick Rubin. He's been producing records long before I was born. You think that this guy, like me, has lots of self-important systemic tools to make him feel special that he tells the people, you know, of course he knows all the tools, but we talk about on this show, it's tools, not rules. So when he says we know nothing, he's not saying, you know, I've got no idea and trying to be in, you know, kind of fishing for compliments. He's saying we know nothing. We have ideas, we have approaches, and he's constantly got this childlike creativity to him, and he's got this presence of joy in every conversation, breathing with people, is excited and curious. It's, I kind of think of it like childlike mastery. He's got every trick you've ever thought of, but he goes, we know nothing, meaning everyone can start from zero. Everyone can start feeling like they're a, a collaborator with Rick and that there's no set way to do things. And I think my favorite Favorite example of this, again, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I won't pick a particular song in this sense, but their structures make no sense very often. But that's why they're so good because they're like, we know nothing. So my influence in this choice is what does it feel like? What's the best thing to come next? Okay, maybe it is a chorus twice. Oh, that's happened before, but I'm doing it because it feels great because I know nothing. Your structures need to be based on feeling. What do you think comes next? What makes you excited? Again, these are very practical things. You can start really wily. And actually, there was a lot of criticism of his book saying it was too woo-woo, too inaccurate. But fuck those people, man. You don't get it. He's got all the tools and all the skills. But yeah, so we know nothing, no regard for rules. It's tools, not rules in this podcast anyway. But I just think the dude's a genius in that sense. Take away, take away, simplify. Give it away, give it away, give it away. No, it's interesting hearing you say that what's coming to my mind and something that I read a long time ago, but has come up in my mind a lot more recently, especially when you say we know nothing. It, it seems like he, he's trying to really instill this idea of beginner's mind, right, that you find in Zen philosophy. Uh, but then I think about it more literally, like, yes, we actually do know nothing because, A, music is an incre incredibly vast subject matter and you can only know so much. And B, uh, in 
the legal field, one thing that we have been, you know, they've been privy to more in recent decades is that a lot of uh, court cases have to be done with DNA evidence or like that's the strongest evidence because eyewitness testimonies are only about 25% accurate. <laughs> so that, that's a staggering statistic. And it really makes you think about like when you think of your own memory, like and applying that statistic to your own memory, it's like how much of that is just storytelling. <laughs> that's my, my one thing to intersperse before we continue on. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. And it's, there's a lot with Rick Rubin that I think is very hard to make tangible, but that's our goal today. And I think, again, I'm kind of, I want to just run through everything again. I won't because you're listening. You guys are on this. If you're listening this far, you want to kind of get what makes him impressive. But minimalism is really important. Let's just talk about that for a very quick second. Minimalism is the idea that for example, there's an exercise a friend of mine did. He's a great writer as well. He said, every single day for a month, I took one thing out of my house that I didn't need or didn't use, right? So think about it as a producer. If you want to talk about a practical way of doing that, Max Martin thinks about four important fundamentals in a song, right? Of course, there's loads more, but he thinks bass, accompaniment, vocal, drums, right? Those things probably need to stay or a sense of rhythm if you don't have drums, or a different kind of accompaniment. But Rick's lying there and going, what can we take away to make this better? Whereas these days, it's very much, what can I add? What can I scream? What can I, you know, do to make this more? But again, it's such a cliche. It's like, what can you take away to make it better? Because you're refocusing on the vocal. You're refocusing on the mood, the emotion. Imagine Red Hot Chili Peppers with, well, like, when you hear them live, they're fucking amazing. They're so fucking good because... What is there is what you hear and what you see is the meat of it. And there's this perfect interaction between all of the members. And it's, it's a masterpiece to listen to. I listen genuinely. I've been listening back to the Chili Peppers Essentials playlist. I'm just like, this is mastery. This is absolute mastery. Yes, they have a really cool keyboard player live and there's a few extra things here and there, but they've just got everything there. And, you know, for Rick Rubin, he is just instilling that atmosphere of creativity and kindness and let everyone get along with each other. Um, one thing I wanted to throw in there as well, we talked about Max Martin. I think Ryan Ted is starting to lean towards this level of mastery as well, but Rick Rubin is the embodiment of it. It's like multi-generational skills that work. Emily, can you guess what works in any generation when it comes to producing records? What's really important? When you said that, the first thing that came to my mind is um, a piece of advice that they tell beginner DJs. If you don't know what to play, play Motown and everyone will be happy. So when you said what works for everyone, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, Motown. <laughs> I like that. Well, I mean, we, we can definitely tangent to Motown because that was about people. That was about relationships. The same band played every time. And I'm going to hijack your answer because I put you on the spot. People skills. I remember I remember had a conversation with a friend of mine. Again, Takahide, who's he's kind of Rick Rubin-esque, actually. He's 26. He's awesome. I can't wait to watch him do what he does. But we were having a conversation and he learned piano when he was three. His mum said, look, you can learn piano. And I can know, you're going to learn theory before you can learn piano because your fingers are too small, right? That kind of guy. And by the age of like 19, he had 10,000 hours. And I was just marveling at this human being. And then he probably has a huge amount of people skills as well. But he said, Jamie, like what, how many hours do you reckon you spent songwriting? I was like, oh, I don't know, less than 10,000. What about singing? Or oh, maybe around 10,000. He says, what about working with people? I went, oh, fuck. I've never thought of that. We ended up with like 35,000 hours. That has been my like triple 10,000 hours has been actually in the thing that 
glues it all together. These are multi-generational skills. Max Martin, Ryan Tedder. Ryan Tedder's still kind of a type A, self, you know, self-confessed type A. But Max Martin is glued into the tribe. He's created his own tribe around him because he benefited from being in one with the mentor, using mentors. Rick Rubin as well has these people skills where he can touch Paul McCartney in the same way he can touch Stormzy. Everyone that's heard of Rick Rubin is, is just reveres him. That's why we are like, you know, same generation, you and I, in terms of music. But we just like that dude is everywhere. I remember like my dad bought the, the Kanye record that he did. Like, I think it's graduation. I could be wrong. But I just heard that as a kid. I, was like, I had no idea who produced it. I was like, this is amazing. It feels amazing. That's the thing. Um, so multi-generational skills, ministry of presence, disregard for rules. We know nothing being like counterintuitive as well. That's the really thing. That, that's the beautiful thing Emily brought up with Under the Bridge was the idea that it's counterintuitive to have that complexity in an intro, but to make it work, take skill. And there's one thing I want to kind of jump onto and we talked about the Barnum effect but I think Anthony Kiedis under the guidance of Rick Rubin because I don't know what Rick Rubin does lyrically I think he just encourages people with that ministry of presence ministry of presence mindset that's the thing you take home today how do you write lyrics that absolutely punch people in the gut that make absolutely no sense that to me is mastery it's the same like how do you do essentially a key change every section and have a non-resolving introduction to one of the most heartfelt and seemingly simple songs ever that is mastery this is the idea you need to know all the tools to be able to break the rules and then it can feel like that kind of, again childlike mastery and one example i think is in the song can't stop and it's he's just listing off these things like i didn't really you know it's having confidence in yourself essentially like making the best of life and it's one of them i probably talked about before but i just can't get over it and I remember it as a kid and I remember it now and it's still an amazing lyric. And it's go ask the desk for any answers, come back strong with 50 belly dancers. And it's just like, that is be confident in yourself, back yourself and you'll do better than you expected. You know, have, have the confidence to convert on things. It doesn't mean that. And he talks beautifully as well. He had this wonderful interview with, with Zane Noe where he talked about, Zane was like, so why do your lyrics sound the way they do? And Anthony was like, very simply, everything's already been said everything's already been said so how do i find ways to be unique and anyone can say things that are completely senseless i think that's not a skill but again how do you combine the senseless with the meaningful and sensual and create lyrics like that where i mean i was i was actually anxious creating this episode with emily because i was like i don't know which songs to pick because there's too many there's too many examples where i just go what does that mean i don't know it's fucking awesome um so is there anything you want to have a go at in terms of like songs? I think we're going to move on to Red Hot Chili Peppers a little bit um, and then we'll we'll swing back to Rick Rubin for the end because he's the three line here. Yeah, no, what you're saying, I mean, you're speaking sort of rhetorically in terms of that question, but I feel like I might have a more concrete answer for you, um, especially in the case of that song Can't Stop or another one that I was listening to within the last couple of weeks just a little bit more was uh, By The Way, where you do have a lot of nonsense. Um, but it is a cool groove and it's it's really interesting in terms of the song structure too, where there's tonal shifts and like full on genre shifts in that song, If I, let's be real. Um, but one thing that Anthony Kiedis does that's actually not too far off from the Max Martin method is he'll just start jamming you know he'll get into the pocket with his band you know and they'll be playing something interesting and a lot of the times it's that process of just like 
trying to come up with placeholder lyrics that'll just give a good arc for the melody and we can we can write in more sensible things later. Um, but he only writes over his gibberish lyrics that he starts with very selectively, is what he said um, in an interview, is that, yeah, a lot of it has to do with him just not feeling like, even if he's come up with a bunch of gibberish lyrics, that those aren't invalid in a sort of way like a lot of times when I'm writing I use the same sort of technique where I'll just be vamping on a few chords on the piano or guitar and I'll be singing some kind of melody and the words don't come out clearly or don't make sense and I think of that as something that I need to still refine but he doesn't like he'll go back in and he'll add lyrics and add more meaning but not necessarily for everything. And I think um, there is an aspect of presence that you're talking about um, where you need to just be very in the moment with it and be also, yeah, like what I was saying too, in service of the song and, and really in that mindset of what does the song actually need? And then being able to make some of the subjective decisions in terms of what do we write over, um, what's just absolute mayhem and fun, because that's really what their sound is, is it started out with this more um, mayhem type of energy in terms of uh, what they're trying to evoke as a band. And then they put out more of like a, a sensitive album, you know, around the time that Anthony Keys was getting clean. And then their sound from there on out became this like syncretic, like especially if you listen to the album, by the way, it's a really a mixture of some of those more delicate arpeggiated riffs from John Frusciante um, and also those more like heavy bass driven rock, rock, rock rap moments that we all know and love. Uh, and now that's their sound. They're, they're you know, uh, crazy guys and they also have their sensitive side. I think that it is just a matter of being able to tap into your subconscious too, to be able to come with a lot of up with a lot of those lyrics. Um, they don't really come from a place of the rational mind. So being able to use yeah different meditation techniques or just vamping on a few chords for a long period of time can be a meditation in itself. You start to get kind of entranced and, um, you know, it, it alters your mind in a certain sort of sense. And I think for people that are listening that maybe don't, have as much practice in meditation or if you're newer to songwriting or any of these things it shouldn't be a barrier i think actually the key to coming up with things from your subconscious is not not filtering yourself not stopping yourself not doing the whole yeah. handbrakes on a supercar as i like to think about it with a lot of people their creativity i can see people in the sessions like they're like blinking like oh there's a thousand ideas going on and they're not letting themselves have a go at any of them and i just think if you're listening now and going this is all such like impractical stuff it really isn't next time like emily's saying vamp find some chords and just start saying shit if it went, no one not many people are brave enough to do that anthony kiedis doesn't only say shit he records that and it's like steak knife card shark can job boot cut dog town bloodbath ribcage soft tail and because he means it because there's such like a richness to their music and other lyrics like emily's saying he deliberately will go like okay but i'm going to give some tangible stuff standing in line to see the show tonight and there's a light on what does that mean? It means everything. It's human. I don't know whether he means to do it, but then he also, the shit that makes no sense, he makes it feel like it makes sense because of the lyrics, uh, because of the performance, sorry. And someone like Rick Rubin's going to sit there and go, yes, that's it. That's the feeling. doesn't make sense. Don't care. That's the feeling. And there's enough in the song, by the way, I tried to say I'd be there. It's like, oh, that's it. I know. 
you you want to be there for someone like blackjack dope dick pawn shop quick pick kiss that dyke i know you got to hold one not on strike it's like what the f- well some people are not brave enough to say that and i think he's got in trouble for the way he lives his life and the way he does things and i remember an interview bringing me on to the other song i want to mention he talked about an interview earlier on like the like the 90s he and he was there and they were like, why do you guys talk about sex so much? There was a, I, could, I believe it was an MTV interview saying, you know, why are you always talking about sex? And he goes, why are we not? It's a very like open thing and obviously done it all consensually. It's n- no one's come over the time and gone, oh, this was done to him. He's like, this is such a wonderful thing we can do. Why are we scared of talking about sexuality, sensuality, our bodies and sharing that love with other people? And, you know, Kiedis has his his past that he's talked about, particularly underage girls and things like that. That's what he's put in his book. And who the fuck writes about how he's admitted to being a paedophile and then like manages to like just shrug it off and release it in his book. Like no one's brave enough to do that. I don't recommend doing that either. Um, But the kind of things that they'll put on a record, I don't know. It shows that freedom and there are times when it's wrong. But the song I want to talk about, very simple, suck my kiss. What does that sound like? Everyone knows, right? But that's the cheekiness and the lever they're willing to go to. And I remember again, I was playing there in Australia I just heard da 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 and my cousin's a bit younger than me and his friends are, but I was bouncing hard and they were like, what the hell is this? I'm like, this is from like, I don't know when the nineties, you know, maybe earlier, but it's like, this is such a banging tune. And they don't forget those basics. Like Emily saying the fundamentals, the Max Martins, bass, drums, vocal, what effect can we have with just what we have? So, ah, it's just all amazing. And I think lyrically not making sense, but touching people is is, a, is fucking genius. Well, w- yeah. And one thing that you're starting to tap into again that you mentioned before is this idea of minimalism, um, which, you know, in the context of Rick Rubin, it's a lot of making sure the track has what it needs and not a whole lot more. Uh, one thing that I mentioned before about him that I noticed is that he records things and then produces them pretty dry. He's not a big, like, effects in post in the box on the DAW type of producer. Like, he's really, I think, not only is it very characteristic of him, but he's pioneered the style in rock and hip-hop um, where it's just, like, very... Uh, yeah, dry and not very affected and only affects like very sparsely and very seldomly, right? It's like, it's kind of like cooking a meal. You don't want to overdo the salt type of thing. Um, but then you got me thinking too in terms of minimalism because that word and what it means has changed a lot over the years. So like now we think of minimalism, we think of um, not a lot of elements and we think of like the word minimal. But initially minimalism was a movement in the 60s that was meant to be like a little bit more radical than modern decor. It was a, started as a painting and sculpture movement. Uh, and the point of it was actually to design a composition in which there is no focal point, which is meant to dissolve this kind of like hierarchy of the focal point in design, right? And I think that in terms of the old definition of minimalism, chili peppers do that. There's not a lot of like hierarchy in terms of the way that it's composed and mixed. Every element is important. The bass riffs uh, really lead the entire band sometimes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or there's like Frashante said, they're asking John about how he structures a guitar solo. He's one of the best guitars players ever, right? And John goes, oh, I just thought every song was a, was a flea bass solo. I'm just here to accompany him. 
because they have that feeling. And even um, Anthony Kiedis was asked, so, you know, as the singer of the band, as the singer of band decision-making, he's like, oh, hold on. Um, I understand why you're asking that, but there's no leader of the band, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. There isn't one. And and even you watch on stage, you go, oh yeah. Like he's like trying to back everyone up. And yes, the way they set up their stage is singer up front. But like Chad Smith, I think is one of the most important members of the band. If not the, in a weird way, I, I thought about it the other day. I was like, wait, take away Flea, you get there. Take away Johnny, you get that. Take away you get Oh shit, Chad. What if you took that away? You'd lose so much. Basically, like one thing that Anthony Kiedis said in an interview before um, is that there are four front men of that band and that he does not like to be referred to as a front man. He like he, the, you could call him a, a musician on a good day is the other thing that he said, you know, it's just it, the point is that all of them are in service of the song. It's not about this kind of contemporary pop style of of mixing and composing that you think of where it's very much like the lead vocalist uh and then everything else is just kind of backdrop it's it's just like every part is super dynamic and i think that it's that kind of like attitude and that kind of camaraderie and also that kind of awareness and having like an an extreme presence of mind that you can extend to everyone else around you which is making me um think the, uh, you were talking about the song Can't Stop a minute ago. The lyric that stands out to me uh, in that song that always has is the last line, this life is more than just a read through, because it really does speak to that ministry of presence. It's such an important reminder. Um, and before we move on, I want to give you guys like a little bit of a mental exercise even that you can do even if you don't meditate um, that pertains to music. Uh, I want you to put on a song and maybe it's one that you're not familiar with and that would be better for this exercise, but like put on a song and try not to form an opinion based on if you like it or not. Uh, try and form. Wow. How do you, that's such a big one. Try to form an opinion based on what you think the artist's intent was. And this is bouncing off of a Rick Rubin quote where he says that his role in the studio is not to form an opinion, but to understand. I think that that's, that really speaks to the strength of his mindset once again. That is such a good thing. You could almost end it on that. There's a few things I want to drag out and repeat because I think there's so much gold here. But your goal is to understand. Particularly, I'm aware he is not quote-unquote a songwriter, but I think Rick can teach us so much as songwriters as collaborators, as musicians, right? And it's that mindset to understand people, to, to let them be comfortable and create in the space that you, you create a bubble for them to be safe in. And they'll, they'll create riches if you're kind enough. You know, they'll be, able, be able to take their trauma and turn it into riches for you and them. And they'll thank you forever for it. It's this incredible thing that was like a therapeutic approach to, to executive and, and to production. And I just think so well thought about Emily. And as you can tell, Emily, I both... Despite being on Zoom, we're both quite excited about this. And it's just a topic that I feel like it's hard to do justice to. You can just highlight, like, I love that Emily's brought minimalism to this and, and the idea of trying to understand. And I want to pick one more lyric because I think I've talked about this on a previous help desk, but it's the other side by the, by the Chili Peppers. And it's, I heard your voice through a photograph. I thought it up and brought up the past. That to me is that's not unconscious in a way that's incredibly consciously done in a way that just slaps you straight in the face. 
So you, you obviously can't hear voices through photographs. I'm not educating anyone by saying that, but you can. And it's like, I thought it up and brought up the past. And again, I think I linked this previously, so I'm just repeating myself, but the chain smokers is like, you know, when I'm, when I, when do you think of me when you're alone? Do you hear my voice in the city when you're alone? That kind of idea of just the sensory power of, of emotions and, and, and that transaction between people. And that's what Rick does. Rick's the bomb. He's the king. He's the, he's the Barnum king, or he encourages the, Anthony Kielis to be the Barnum King and they're kind to each other they get along they can spend long periods of time together that's no joke and it's not easy to do I'm sure they rub each other the wrong way sometimes but what Rick Rubin does is the kind of granddad Socratic I will not be moved I'm here to understand and I'm really help you to understand yourself so I want to say again Ministry of Presence incredible range from Jay-Z and the Beastie Boys to Kesha and Red Hot Chili Peppers and Kanye West it's just how the hell did you do that? It's taught me to be more open, to be a better collaborator, to be a better human, a listener, minimalism, take away with your production, make music that you love to your taste, your feeling first, like ear candy, counterintuitive tricks. We know nothing, no regard for rules, his presence since joy, childlike mastery, and make new things, enjoy new things. And you will not be remembered for what you say, but how you make people feel. That's my Angelo kind of repurposed and people skills people skills people skills emily can you round us off is there anything else that you want to get out there to people about king rick oh man i think that that last quote really sums him up for me actually i'll say it again not to form an opinion but to understand is his mindset whenever he goes in the studio whenever he's in the room with another artist and so just being able to facilitate that the best you can is what I'm getting out of this, uh, you know, but I appreciate you bringing this subject to me and the enthusiasm about the chilies too, because earlier we were talking about the Rick Rubin moment, you know, earlier in his life where his aunt is bringing him to New York City in order to engage more with arts and culture. And that's how he's initially sort of meeting people and that sort of like the spark for him, right? The momentum that brought him out into the city. For me, like, it, it makes me emotional because my one of my, like, Rick Rubin moments in the context of that story is definitely with Anthony Kiedis, right? I was, uh, you know, I first saw them in 2006 when I was a teenager. And um, one of my good friends from middle school at the time's dad is a local concert presenter. And so... <laughs> Like, I got this experience to be able to get, like, a pass and go backstage and, right, we're having dinner and the show's about to start. And then Anthony Kiedis walks in the room. My friend has no idea who he is. I'm like, that's the lead singer of the band we're about to see. And, you know, I'm, like, nervous because he's, he, he's saying hello to everyone, right? He's being incredibly friendly. He said hello to everyone in the entire room. He came up to us and... <laughs> Right. I'm, I'm kind of intimidated because not only is he famous and I'm a young teenager, but he also, you know, has this intense, like snarling panther tattoo on his bicep. He's he's really hot. You can say it. But he's got he definitely has a more um, intimidating image. And but then when he opens his mouth to speak, he has this like really airy voice that sounds nothing like his singing voice at all whatsoever. And he's just he's really kind. And like he treats us like um, he would treat his band members, you know, and 
he he's he tells me he's like you know I really would love to stay and talk with you guys longer like I'm really enjoying this like it's it's fun to meet everybody and he's just like levels with everyone such a human level he's like but I gotta go um someone from a radio re- contest requested that we play Funky Monks and I haven't uh rehearsed that song since probably about the year you were born <laughs> you know and so but just having that like brief interaction, I, I started to realize that like all of these things that seemed like so unattainable um, and like things that I had a bit of a distance from as a listener, you know, just being able to interact with musicians via listening to their CDs, all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, these are people. These are people like me that have these like little moments where they kind of touch God. But otherwise, they go through their lives, their day to day. And so maybe I can do this. And then, of course, they put on a show that is equally, if not more tight than the record. I don't think I've ever seen a band that sounds so close to the record as the Chili's. They're just amazing. And so, yeah, it's making me a little bit emotional to talk about this stuff because I wouldn't be sitting here as interested if it wasn't for that bit of momentum, you know? Momentum, absolutely. And. There's a few things you said there that are beautiful and thank you for sharing that because I can see that you're welling up and it's getting me there because they're one of those bands. They're one of those bands and the Rick Rubin filter is to be able to capture something that feels like a live show, to be able to capture something the artist loves, that the listener takes to their heart, not just to their ears. And that is so important and it's embodying. And I think I was going to, I'll make a short comment at the end about kind of a something I've seen between Elvis and Rick Rubin, but I just want to sit with your moment because it's so beautiful. And to see someone that's struggling and to know that Kiedis, that person that we've all seen and the whole world has had their piece of, let's be completely honest, we owe him a lot and he's got a lot for it, but we owe him a lot as well as the others. They're humans and they're kind. They know that you're the reason that he has a job. So he takes the time, but he does it with charm and he moves on and he, it's just such a beautiful thing to kind people. And that is what we've talked about a lot today. How can you be a really kind person, creative and, and driven and non-judgmental and, and poised with tools? But like you said, just being hum- being humble. And I think to close this out, there was a really interesting, you said it at the start, but Rick Rubin's grandma, it's interesting, right? Created a space for him. Sorry, his aunt got me confused with Elvis. In fact, I'll say it, Elvis and Rick Rubin, they had a member of their family that made them feel comfortable enough to explore new things. In Rick Rubin's case, it might have been opera, art, art, culture, encouraged, like, hey, there's no judgment. What do you think about it? What do you understand of it? Elvis, listening to the earlier days of, of kind of blues, of black music, of that beautiful cauldron of things that were not being heard, but he was exposed to it and he went, this is amazing. I have to be a part of it and then I have to share it with what I'm being given. These people had spaces created for them. They were encouraged to be themselves and that's what music is about. That's what music's for. That's what the therapeutic approach to music should be. So the ministry of presence is incredibly important. Um, I think an emotional note is a beautiful way to end this particular episode because that's what Rick would want You'd want us to be here with our emotions and to feel them. And you'd have, you've heard plenty of practical things and lots of interesting things that we've kind of picked apart, particularly Emily. But I'll leave you with this. It's a pleasure to, to be here with you, Emily, uh, across the internet. 
It's a pleasure to share this kind of moment with everyone. It's a pleasure to to be able to do this. So thank you to everyone that listens, past, present, future. And thank you to Emily for, for joining me on this incredible topic of King Rick and the Chili Peppers. Thanks for having me. Hello there, sweet listener. Thank you for listening to today's show. And I just wanted to say, we do have an Instagram. I know that some of you guys are quite interested in just sending those private emails. And I promise you, they are absolute gold dust to me. And I love receiving those emails when people get time to send them with their songs, with their questions. And mainly, I love your stories about how you're listening to the show, where you found it, what it means to you. Those are the things I'll probably take to my grave, to be completely honest. But if you want to be out there on social media, please get in touch. I wish I knew that part on Instagram. We're going to be getting stuff up on YouTube as well. Reach out, send me a DM, send me a voice note, send me a video. I want to see you guys. I want to see your shows. I want to hear your songs. Thank you again for listening to the show. If you want to be involved and get full value for your creative process, please do so. But if you're one of those wonderful people that just likes to sit and observe i know you're out there and thank you so much for your attention it really does mean a lot so no need to get in touch but if you feel like you want to be involved please do so much love and bye-bye